Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapter 23 of Allegiant. And it's a Tobias POV. It's been a while since we touched down with Tobias because where we left off, Triss was just reading her mum's diary and learning things slash unlearning things slash getting confused. And we ended that chapter with Triss getting so horned up over a conversation with her brother about her ancestry that she went and she made out with Tobias. She meets up with him at the dorm and she just starts passion him. And he's like, what the hell's going on? And he's like, all right, let's make out. So that's where that ended. And then we start chapter 23 with him saying that night when my head hits the pillow, heavy with thoughts, I hear something crinkle beneath my cheek. It's a note under my pillowcase. So clearly they weren't rolling around in the bed, otherwise that note would have been dislodged, but no, so someone slid a note under his pillowcase and it's from Nita, that girl, Nita. She says, meet me outside the hotel entrance at 11. I need to talk to you. And so he looks over at Triss, who's already fast asleep in her own cot, and he thinks, oh, it's a bit weird that I'm gonna go out and meet a girl, a pretty girl, without her knowing. But he's also like, ah, but I don't wanna wake her up. So he leaves and it's only 10 to 11. So she must've been really tired from all of the reading that she did last chapter. And I think he's screwed up here. I think she would have appreciated a heads up. That is one going outside of the hotel to meet a girl, but it's not just a gender thing. Like this is one of the other people there. It's not their crew. I don't know. I would have filled her in if she was my girlfriend. Yeah, if she was my girlfriend, I have to share a lot of things with her that she might not want to hear. But he says, Nita's just a friend. You can tell Tris tomorrow it might be urgent. So he hops right out of bed and puts his shoes on. He says, I sleep in my clothes these days, which doesn't sound very sanitary. He walks past Peter's cot and then Uriah. He has a little peek at Uriah's cot and underneath Uriah's pillow is a flask. I don't know if he's Superman with x-ray vision, but yeah, so underneath the pillow is Uriah's flask and he thinks, oh, I promised Zeke that I'd look after Uriah. So he just steals the flask. So he goes to the hotel entrance. There's Nita. She's tapping her foot. And I think she's being all impatient, but you know what? Sliding a note under someone's pillow probably isn't the best way to communicate considering he only saw it 10 minutes prior to the deadline time. She said, meet me at 11 and he got it at 10.50. So not the most reliable form of communication. 
What if he had rolled around on his pillow and heard that crinkle just like 15 minutes later? You would have been out the front tapping your foot for an even longer period of time. And so he says to Nita, you look worried. And she goes, that's because I am. (laughs) She says, come on, there's a place I've been wanting to show you since you got here two days ago. So she starts leading him down some hallways. Then they go to another room, which is like a big room with a chandelier in it. And he says the walls are covered in sheets of bronze. And he says there are names inscribed on the bronze panels, dozens of names. And she says, yep. And she holds her arms out and she says, these are the Chicago family trees, your family trees. (sighs) And so he says, he moves closer to the walls and he looks at these bronze panels and he's looking for names that he can recognize. And he sees Uriah Padrad and Ezekiel Padrad. And there's a DD marked next to Uriah's name. He thinks signifying him as divergent. And he says, do you know where mine is? And she goes, yeah, over here. The generations are matrilineal. That's why Janine's record said Tris was second generation because her mother came from outside the city. And she says, I'm not sure how Janine knew that, but I guess we'll never find out. Anyway, so then he goes up to his family tree, which is inscribed on some bronze panels in this big room with a chandelier in it. Can we just, I feel like I skipped over that. What the fuck's that about? Why have they done this? Why have they inscribed the people from Chicago, their family trees all around the room? What purpose does that serve? Surely these records exist elsewhere. Caleb was just in a room full of records and he was telling us that paper is a super, (laughs) it's a super safe and secure place to put secret information because paper can be destroyed. And so that whole spiel about, oh yeah, they keep things on paper so that they can destroy it if needed. Well, that seems to contradict the fact that they've been inscribing people's names in bronze panels and, uh, on the walls of this hotel room. What? Or maybe they're not in the hotel, they're in part of the airport. But still, why could this not just exist on a floppy disk on Ancestry.com? I don't understand it. Is this really the best way to keep that record? I don't know. I don't know. And so he starts walking towards the panel with his family tree on it. And he says, I have a feeling of trepidation. I don't know why, mate. You know who your parents are. He says, I see a vertical line connecting Kristen Johnson to Evelyn Johnson and a horizontal one connecting Evelyn Johnson to Marcus Eaton. And below the two names is just one, Tobias Eaton. Yeah, I know. I know who your parents are. This isn't a big shock to me. And next to his name are the letters AD and there's a dot. So I don't know what the dot means. AD means something damaged, actually damaged. (laughs) And uh, DD means definitely divergent. Uh, I'm not too sure. Oh no. Okay. So it's got nothing to do with them being divergent. I think it means he went from abnegation to dauntless. And so Uriah, he had DD, which meant dauntless to dauntless. And the dot means divergent. I would have thought maybe they would have done something more jazzy than just a dot, like maybe an asterisk. That's the whole purpose of the Chicago experiment to get all these little divergent people and they're just putting little dots next to their names. I don't know about that. Oh, okay. I don't know why I was just speculating because then Nita explains it. She says, the first letter is your faction of origin. The second is your faction of choice. They thought that keeping track of the factions would help them trace the path of the genes. How so? I mean, I mean, how fucking so? Uh, Nothing. It matters. If they can just go to a choosing ceremony when they're 15 and change factions, does it matter what faction they were born in? Does any of it matter? 
And then his mother's name has EAF next to it, which means she went from erudite to abnegation to factionless. So she's just getting all the letters. And his dad has AA with a dot. So his dad was divergent. Was that confirmed for us? I think it might've been, but everyone seems to be fucking divergent at this point. So I don't really care. Do they all have dots next to their name? I don't know. But I just, I just can't get over the fact that there's a whole family tree that we're looking at. And so then Tobias says, while I appreciate you showing me this, I'm not sure why it had to happen in the middle of the night, which is a great point considering I don't think they lock this room off. I don't know how no one stumbled on this room before. It doesn't seem like it's a big secret. If they wanted it to be a secret, they should have written it on a piece of paper and hid it in the record room. And Nita just goes, oh, I just thought you might like to see it. And also I got something to talk to you about. And he's like, oh, what? You want to talk about how my limitations don't define me? Spare me. And she, okay, she says, that conversation I had with you last night about genetic damage, it was actually a test. Oh God, everything's a test in these books. She says, I wanted to see how you would react to what I said about damaged genes so I would know whether I could trust you or not. Okay. If you accepted what I said about your limitations, the answer would have been no. I mean, as far as tests go, that one's pretty basic and... uh, Okay, so then she says, I'm not on board with being classified as damaged either. As if that's a radical thing to not want to be called damaged. So here we are with another insurrectionist. (sighs) And it's funny that she called this book Allegiant when we left that group of rebels behind and we've barely dealt with them and now we're discovering a new group of rebels. Okay, Nita, what do you call yourself? Blablurgent, uh, regurgent, I don't know what else she could call themselves. Four starts to get excited because he loves a rebel. He says, I'm afraid of her, afraid of what she says, and I'm thrilled by it too. Because it means I don't have to accept that I am smaller than I once believed. So this guy has recently found out that his whole life has been a lie. The faction system, a lie. The truth about the outside world, a lie. He's handling all of that quite well is just the fact that he's not actually divergent, which has really rankled him. And he's like, yeah, I'm not on board with that either. And she says, there are a lot of secrets in this place. One of them is that to them, a GD is expendable. Another is that some of us are not just going to sit back and take it. And I don't know if it is a secret that they think the genetically damaged people are expendable, considering they're letting them die in droves as part of like experiments such as this. And so Nita says, the crimes they have committed against people like us are serious and hidden. I can show you evidence, but that will have to come later. Why, Nita? If you're going to promise me evidence, don't dangle it like a carrot. Stump up and show me the evidence. Where are the receipts, Neats? (laughs) That's her new nickname, Neats. Where are the receipts, Neats? She says, for now, what I can tell you is that we're working against the Bureau for good reasons and we want you with us. Shock! Shock. And he's like, oh, okay, what do you want from me? And she goes, well, I want to offer you an opportunity to see what the world is like outside the compound. And he says, well, what do you get in return? And she says, your protection. I'm going to a dangerous place and I can't tell anyone else from the Bureau about it. You're an outsider, which means it's safer for me to trust you. And I know you know how to defend yourself. And if you come with me, I'll show you that evidence you want to see. Okay, I don't think she's thought this through very much because I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. And he goes, okay, whatever. 
And she says, okay, but first, before I show you anything, you have to accept that you won't be able to tell anyone, even Triss, about what you see. Are you all right with that? And I don't know. I don't like this. As much as I think she's probably telling the truth and the Bureau are dodgy little dogs. I'm sick of the jumping from one rebel group to another rebel group to another rebel group. We're with the factionless. We're with the allegiant. We're going to the Amity compound. He's brainwashed and part of the dauntless erudite army. Now they're hanging out with the Bureau and now they're hanging out with this rebel group. I've just, I can't keep up. And he says that Triss is trustworthy. And he thinks about how he promised he wouldn't keep secrets from her anymore. Even though he just, he just did. He looked at her and said, should I wake her up and tell her where I'm going? But he actively made a choice to withhold that information, at least for now. So that's what having a secret means. And he says, why can't I tell her? And she says, I'm not saying she isn't trustworthy. It's just that she doesn't have the skill set we need because she's not damaged. She says, see, the Bureau doesn't want us to organize. If we believe we're not damaged, then we're saying that everything they're doing, the experiments, the genetic alterations, all of it is a waste of time. And no one wants to hear that. I don't know what she's talking about, but I'm all for for saying, yeah, sure, let's go outside of the city and see what's going on because that'll be more interesting than this. We're reading about family trees. For someone who has never been in the dark about who his parents are. So yeah, I'm keen. Get out of the airport. Let's go see what's going on out there. And then she says, if you tell her, you would be depriving her of the choice I'm giving you now. You would force her to become a co-conspirator. By keeping this from her, you would be protecting her. And now, that, again, that doesn't really sit right with me. I don't know what the hell she's talking about. But that resonates with Four. He's all about protecting Triss. And, you know, they take discussions about free will very seriously in these books. So by actively giving her a choice, he would be depriving her of a choice. (laughs) And because he doesn't want to deprive her of free will, he will not give her the opportunity to make her own decisions. So to help him think, he looks at the family tree. He runs his hand over his name and he says, these are my genes. This is my mess. I don't want to pull Triss into it. And he says, all right, show me. All this nonsense over a missing little dot next to his name. It's, it's become a whole big thing. What I want to know is, why didn't he have a dot by his name? Because we all thought he was divergent until like yesterday when they did some genetic testing. So like if Triss has a dot from just all the evidence that has amassed from them watching what's going on in the city, He should have a dot as well because they were openly talking about how he's also divergent. Or maybe old mate who was doing the genetic testing just yesterday has come in with a chisel and just like re-inscribed the family tree on that section of the bronze plate. I don't understand it. So we cut to, they're escaping the airport. She's leading him deep into the underground hallways of the compound, past the place where the GDs gather to a corridor where electricity no longer flows. She's got a flashlight, she's crouching. She's pulling back a a hatch to an escape tunnel. Then she's got this bag that she's stashed away in in a broom closet. And she pulls out some of those glow stick lights and she's navigating the tunnel with that. We've turned into an espionage thriller. And so then they have to drop down through this emergency tunnel hatch. It must be a vertical tunnel. 
And he's sitting there and he's like, Ugh. and she goes, oh, I forgot you're afraid of heights because she knows everything about this man because they've, they've been watching a city of hundreds of people. But this woman who cleans the genetic labs, she's been paying enough attention that she can single out this individual's fears. <laughs> And she's got a good, a good running history of his problems with heights. So she's like, oh yeah, I know everything about you. I forgot you're afraid of heights. And he gets all defensive. And he says, well, I'm not afraid of much else. And she goes, oh my God, I know, I know. And she's like, actually, I've always wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> Again, because he's a fucking famous figure that she's been watching for months. She hasn't been there that long, but she's been watching him for months, studying him. She knows all about his nickname for, and she's like, I wanted to ask you about that. Well, specifically about your third fear. I don't want to know about your first, second and fourth fears, but specifically, who was that woman that you were shooting in your fear simulations? So yeah, she's been paying very close attention to some guy in one of the five factions, which is remarkable considering it was never her job to be watching what's going on in the Chicago experiment anyway. And he's not thrown by the fact that she's just asked this. He just says, oh, she wasn't anyone in particular. The fear was just me shooting her. And this little busybody, Nita, she says, oh, okay, so you were afraid of shooting people then? And he goes, no, I was afraid of my considerable capacity to kill. Oh God. So one of four's big four fears was his capacity to kill. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I feel like if that's one of your biggest fears, there's an easy fix to that. And it's just like, don't kill people. You know, like I can see how if you're afraid of heights, that would be a bit more 
challenging because day to day you might be presented with times when you're up high or you're walking over a bridge or you're looking over a ledge. But if you're afraid of killing people, just don't kill them. Maybe don't choose Dauntless. He could have easily have just transferred to Amity. I don't know why, if that's his fear, he'd go to Dauntless and then like rise up through the ranks and do security detail and carry weapons. And so then Nita's like, oh, I've always wondered what would be in my fear landscape. And he's just like, okay, like, what do you want me to do with that Nita? Do you want me to shoot you up with some serum right now? It's not fun. It was described to us as like a form of torture last chapter, but she's like, oh, I've always wanted to be shot up with some fear serum to figure out what my fears are. And I don't know why you need a fear serum to figure out what your fears are. Just, are you afraid or are you not afraid of certain things? And so then after 20 minutes of them walking, they turn a corner and he smells fresh wind. You know, in this book, they're always smelling wind. And the tunnel leads them out somewhere in the wasteland that they drove through when they're on their way to the compound. And parked a few feet away is an old truck. And the truck's empty, but they climb into it. And the keys are in the ignition. And he's like, oh my God, whose truck is this? And she says, it belongs to the people we're going to meet. I asked them to park it here. Okay, can we just sit back and recognize the effort that she's gone to? She's stashed go bags in closets. She's gotten like glow sticks prepared. She's organized this getaway van with the keys in the ignition. And yet her big plan to get four on board for all of this to be deemed necessary was to put a note under his pillow that he almost missed with 10 minutes to go. So much planning. And yet I don't think she thought through the most crucial part, which was getting Tobias's attention. And he's like, okay, cool. So like, who are we going to meet? Like who left this truck here? And she's like, they're just friends of mine. She's being so cagey. Even though she just said like, I need your protection out in the big wide world. And next minute she's like, oh yeah, my friends left me this truck. I don't know. If I was four, I'd be counting up the red flags and being like, well, that doesn't quite make sense. This gives me pause, but four's just like, cool. So she starts driving around. She almost hits a deer and it's the first deer Four has ever seen because he describes it as a long-legged creature with a brown spare body, which, okay, first rate of that, I was like, what the fuck's he talking about? I would never in a million guesses have guessed deer is what he was trying to describe there. Long-legged creature with a brown spare body. And she says, oh, they're beautiful, aren't they? Before I came here, I'd never seen a deer and neither had he apparently. And so he's like, yeah, cool, it's beautiful. And they just sit there like staring at the deer for a little bit, who's in the middle of the road. And then eventually she's like, all right, we'll get out of the fucking way. So she honks the horn and the deer has to like run off of the road. (laughs) I thought she was trying to be discreet. I don't know where they are, but she's honking the horn, not a care in the world, uh, uh, who she alerts to her presence. And then she drives on. Um, He notices the railroad tracks that they came in on and then they travel northeast away from the railroad tracks. Okay. Then he says, it's a long time before I see electric light again. When I do, it is along a narrow patchy street. And so Nita says, we stop here. Then she says, check in the glove box. I asked them to give us weapons. So she really did plan the whole kit and caboodle. And I mean, he just was saying he's afraid of his capacity to kill people, but he's like, okay, weapons, sure. And so in the glove box are two knives. And she says, how are you with a knife? And he's like, huh. Dauntless training really prepared me with a knife. He's like, you have no idea. He says, I'm all right with a smirk. And he says, I never thought that skill would actually be worth anything though. Afraid of his capacity to kill on one hand, on the other, super smug about his 
handiness with a knife. And so then she says, I think she's flirting. She says, I guess the Dauntless are good for something after all. Four. So now she's calling him by his nickname, which I don't think he's asked her to do. It's still creepy that she knows his nickname at all, but she smiles and she takes one of the knives and then they get out of the car. They start walking down the alley. He says the windows are like flickering with candlelight and at one point he looks up and he sees some hair and some deep eye sockets staring back at him. So that's terrifying. And he says, people live here. And she's like, yes, yeah, no fucking shit. She says, this is the very edge of the fringe. It's about a two hour drive from Milwaukee, which is a metropolitan area north of here. And she goes, yeah, people live here. These days, people don't venture too far away from cities, even if they want to live outside the government's influence, like the people here. And he says, why do they want to live outside of the government influence? And she says, because they're genetically damaged, you big idiot. She says, genetically damaged people are technically, legally, equal to genetically pure people, but only on paper, so to speak. In reality, they're poorer, more likely to be convicted of crimes, less likely to be hired for good jobs, you name it. She says it's a problem and has been since the purity war over a century ago. Now, this might sound crazy, but like, could they just pretend they're not genetically damaged? Could you just go to a job interview and be like, hi, I'm genetically pure. And they'd be like, you're hired. I guess there's some sort of family tree dot system in place on a wide scale, but we haven't heard of it. Maybe there's microchipping or something. I don't know. She says for people who live in the fringe, it seemed more appealing to opt out of society completely rather than try to correct the problem from within like I intend to do. Okay, she's sounding more and more like a terrorist with each sentence. And he's like, ha cool, 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 cool. How do you plan on doing that, by the way? And as he says that, he's thinking about the tattoo on her skin. She's the one with the broken glass tattoo, which signifies, I don't know, damage or some crap. He says, I wonder when she got that tattoo. I wonder what put that dangerous look in her eyes. What put such drama in her speech and what made her become a revolutionary? Yeah, maybe think about that and ask her a few more questions because I think she's a terrorist. So he says, how do you plan on doing that? And she says, by taking away some of the Bureau's power. I don't know if she means power as in like electricity or as like power as in dominance. So they're totally in skid row. He's looking around. People are walking around with bottles in their hands. They're mostly quite young. Not a lot of adults are in the fringe. And then down one alley, there's like a crowd of people watching two people punching each other. And so he like starts to go towards them and she's like, don't be a hero. So they just ignore the brawl that's happening in the streets. Then they get to the building they're meant to be getting to. And there's this scary looking guy spinning a knife in his hands. He's standing by the door. And she says, we're here to see Rafi. We're from the compound. And he goes, okay, you can go in, but your knives stay here. And she says, not a chance. And then someone from inside with an expressive musical voice says, Nita, is that you? And so this man, he comes to the door and he says, what are you doing? Just let him in. They can have their knives. Who cares? So that was a little easy obstacle to overcome. And so then she's like, oh, hi, Rafi. For this is Rafi. He's an important man in the fringe. And Rafi's like, cool. Nice to meet you. I thought this would be interesting. I don't know why I thought that. There's a woman sitting in the back of the room. Uh, She has red hair and a generous frame, whatever the hell that means. I don't know if she's, I don't know, got big, big breasts or something. What's, what's that about? A generous frame. And Rafi says weapons on the table. And Nita's like, okay. So, okay. So she's 
Now she's fine to get rid of the knife. I don't know what to tell you. Meanwhile, the woman, the generous framed woman, she whips out a gun and puts that on the table. And so this generously framed woman, she says, who's this? Who's this geezer? And Nita says, that's my associate four. And she goes, what kind of a name is four? And then Nita just spills the beans and says, the kind you get inside the city experiment for having only four fears, which I didn't think we'd get into that, but we're getting into that. I mean, she could have just called him Tobias and avoided that question, but here she is just putting Tobias on blast in front of everyone, just explaining his trauma. If I were Tobias, I'd be like, okay, well, can you, can you back off a little bit? I've only just met this generously framed woman. I don't know anything about her. And here you are telling her that I've only got four fears. Please don't list them. I don't want her to know about my capacity to kill. And Four even thinks it occurs to me that she might've introduced me by that name just to have the opportunity to share where I'm from, which is an unexpected little insight from Tobias. And I think he's right. I think she loves name dropping this Four character. I think she loves dropping that he's from an experiment. And if he's noticing all of this stuff, I don't know why he still trusts her. Maybe he's just so bored hanging out at the airport all day. He's like, yeah, I'll go to the fringe. I'll hang out with this terrorist chick for a little while. And so this generously framed woman, she says, interesting. Well, for my name is Mary, which is a much more boring name, let's be honest. So Nita says, Mary and Rafi lead the Midwest branch of a GD rebel group. So, I mean, she's not hiding the fact that they're a rebel group and that she wants to destroy the Bureau from the inside. She's, she's been quite open and honest about that, hasn't she? And Four's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I don't know why they're being so open and honest with, with Four, considering they know nothing about him, but they double down on it. Rafi says, oh, calling it a group makes us sound like old ladies playing cards. We're actually more of an uprising. It's like, okay, Jesus. He says, our reach stretches across the country There's groups for every metropolitan area that exists and regional overseers for the Midwest, South and East. And Four's good with a compass. And he's like, okay, Midwest, South, East. What about West? And Nita says, West doesn't exist anymore. She says the terrain was too difficult to navigate and the city's too spread out for it to be sensible to live there after the war. Now it's wild country. And so then Mary's like, oh my God. So it's true what they say. The people in the city experiments don't know what's outside. And Nita's like, yeah, no fucking shit. Of course they don't. And of course that's true. Who's lying about that? Of all the things that people are lying to each other about, it's not about that. And it's at this moment where Four's like, oh God, not another uprising. He says, I've been a part of too many uprisings in my short life. The factionless and now this GD one, apparently. And he did just list two uprisings. But you know what they say? Even one uprising's too many. Two? Oh. No wonder he's exhausted, two uprisings, that's a lot. But I actually think he is forgetting the Allegiant uprising as well. So then Mary's like, okay, well, this has been a nice fucking chat. Let's get to it. And Nita's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, cool. She goes, four, can you go and make sure nothing's happening outside? I need to talk to Mary and Rafi privately for a little while. And so I don't know why she'd bring him if she's just gonna make him wait outside, but okay, that's what she does. And so then he goes and stands next to the security guard and just watches the street. So that brawl that was happening on the street, that's died down because someone's died. He's looking at the body across the street and someone's rifling through its pockets. And he says, oh, dead? And the guy next to him's like, yes. He says, if you can't defend yourself here, you won't last a night. And so he says, well, why do people even come here then? (laughs) Why don't they just go back to the cities? 
which could either be like really naive or really astute. And the security guard guy, he thinks on that for a little bit. And then he goes, here, there's a chance that if you die, someone will care. Someone like Rafi or one of the other leaders. In the cities, if you get killed, no one will give a damn, not if you're a GD. Which, I mean, doesn't seem like much comfort. If you die here, someone will care. Okay. Does someone care about that dead body across the street that you guys just watched get killed and robbed? And you did nothing about it, security guard guy. He did nothing about it. And he's like, if you die here, someone will care. Well, not you, obviously. He says, the worst crime I've ever seen a GP get charged with for killing a GD was manslaughter, which means the crime is deemed an accident. He says, officially, of course, we're all to be treated the same, but it's rarely put into practice. And Four's like, okay. So I get the whole point that Veronica's trying to get at with GP privilege and discrimination against GD people. I just wish she'd name them something else. Like GD and GP, it doesn't have a ring to it, does it? At least in the Chicago experiment, they're coming up with nicknames. Divergent, Allegiant, Insurgent, they're coming up with great little nicknames. But on the outside world, it's just all about the letters. And so this security guard guy, he's just said that. And Four's looking at him and he says, I see when I look at him, a king surveying his own kingdom, which he believes is beautiful. I look out at the street, at the broken pavement and the limp body with its turned out pockets and the windows flickering with firelight. And I know the beauty he sees is just freedom, freedom to be seen as a whole man instead of a damaged one. Yeah, it doesn't seem that beautiful to me. Oh, what a view looking out on that dead body getting robbed. And so then the guy says, oh, you're from Chicago, right? Now that you're out, how does the world seem to you? And Tobias, I think is being polite saying, oh, mostly the same. Like I think maybe inside the city was a bit nicer than the fringe. He says, yeah, it's mostly the same. People are just divided by different things, fighting different wars, which, okay, that's true. And then suddenly Nita's behind him and she's like, all right, that's all done, let's go. And then they just leave and Rafi waves goodbye. I thought we were gonna get like intel. All we did was meet Mary, that generously framed woman, and then little Rafi. If I was Tobias, I'd be like, okay, now can we get to the intel you've been promising me? Like, where's the evidence? Where's the receipts, Neats? So they get into the truck and Four's like, ugh, that was gross. He says, I am ready to get back to the dream of the compound, the warmth and the light and the feeling of safety. And he says to Neats, he says, I'm having trouble understanding why this place is preferable to city life. And like, yeah, I get where you're coming from. You just saw a corpse get pillaged and plundered. And she says, well, I've only been to a city that wasn't an experiment once. There's electricity, but it's on a ration system. Each family only gets so many hours a day, same with water. And there's lots of crime, which is blamed on genetic damage. There are police, but they don't do much. So yeah, I'd still rather get electricity on a ration system they'd be getting killed and left in the street. Call me crazy. And he says, so the bureau compound, it's easily the best place to live then. And she says, in terms of resources, yeah, but the same social system that exists in the cities also exists in the compound. It's just a little harder to see. And well, no, I don't think it is because they they dress you up in color-coded uniforms. Didn't we learn just a couple of chapters ago that If you're genetically damaged and you work at the bureau, you wear like blue uniforms or something. And if you're genetically pure and you were born into the compound as one of the puros, you wear white. And yeah, puros, why don't they call them that instead of JPs? That's that's much catchier. So they're driving back and he says, okay, 
So what did you actually come out here to talk to them about, by the way? And she says, I came out here to solidify our plans. And she says, and I wanted them to meet you to put a face on the people inside the faction experiments. Yeah, they met him for like a hot second. And then you sent him outside to stand next to that barrel of laughs of a security guard watching that dead body get plundered. She says, Mary used to be suspicious that people like you were actually colluding with the government, which of course isn't true. I don't know why she's so sure that that's not true. But then she says, Rafi was the first person to give me proof that the Bureau, that the government, was lying to us about our history. And she pauses after she says it, because I think she thinks that's like a big, like, truth bomb. But he's like, yeah, the government's lied to me my whole fucking life, doll. Like, I'm not shocked here. So she says, the Bureau talks about the golden age of humanity before the genetic manipulations, in which everyone was genetically pure and everything was peaceful. But... Rafi showed me old photographs of war. And he's like, okay, so? And she's like, so? If genetically pure people caused war and total devastation in the past at the same magnitude that genetically damaged people supposedly do now, then what's the basis for thinking that we need to spend so many resources and so much time working to correct genetic damage? Yes, this is all a very good point. She says, what's the use of experiments at all, except to convince the right people that the government is doing something to make all our lives better, even though it's not? Yeah, Dal, it doesn't make sense. I love how they've wiped all history of like war prior to the purity war that happened a hundred years ago. So no one's ever stopped to think like, why did they start manipulating people's genes? That doesn't make sense. The reason like a hundred years ago when they started the genetic manipulations before the purity war was to avoid war. So I don't understand how they weren't aware that the concept of war existed before the purity war a hundred years ago. I, I, I don't get it. But she's convinced him completely. He says that changes everything. He says here now, a lie has changed the struggle. A lie has shifted priorities forever. Instead of working against the poverty or crime that have run rampant over this country, these people have chosen to work against genetic damage. And he's like, okay, well then why, why are they fighting something that isn't really a problem? And she says, well, the people fighting it now probably fight it because they have been taught that it is a problem. She says, Rafi also showed her examples of the propaganda the government released about genetic damage. She talks about controlling the genetically damaged population, blah, blah, blah. I can't help but feel like Veronica's just trying to stick the landing uh, by just saying shit. I honestly can't imagine that this was her game plan when she wrote Divergent. They seem like two completely different books, don't they? I think she just liked the idea of a tiny little society locked up in Chicago's, which just focuses on five factions based on personality types. And then I think she got that book published and she went, oh shit, now what? I didn't come up with an idea for what's outside of the fence. And she's written this and it's just all so shit. So it's a lot of information for four to process now. They get back to the compound. The sun's about to rise. He sits across from Triss, who's asleep still. And he's looking at her and he's thinking about the promise that they made in Millennium Park on top of the Jay Pritzker Pavilion. He says, if I don't tell her about what I heard and saw tonight, I will be going back on that promise. And for what? To protect her, to protect Nita, a girl I barely know. And then he thinks she doesn't need my protection. She's strong enough on her own. And I don't know if he's referring to Nita or Triss there. I think probably Triss. So I don't know if that means he's going to tell her. I think that means he is going to tell her. Well, that's actually quite an ambiguous ending. I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't really care. 
So that was another long chapter that we've just had to tackle. So join me next week for the rest of this stupid freaking book. Any thoughts, theories, feelings, questions, concerns, please let me know and I'll catch up with you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.